Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Murens. On today's episode, we are joined by Pantia Jafari, a lawyer who recently successfully represented over 100 litigants in a case-managed judicial review. To quote the National Post on August 10, 2022, quote, A federal judge has ruled more than 100 potential immigrants from Iran had their cases unfairly rejected and has ordered a second look at their files in a move that could set a precedent for hundreds more cases. The government has a small immigration category for self-employed artists and athletes. The program is meant to offer a path to citizenship for people with world-class talents. But in an internal memo revealed during the court process, bureaucrats admitted the information available about the program was confusing and there was no clear standard. The case before the court involved just over 100 applicants from Iran who applied to come to Canada and were rejected. Cases from Iran had previously been processed through the government's office in Ankara, Turkey, but the government shifted them to Warsaw, Poland to deal with a backlog, and immigration consultants said the number of rejections grew considerably. In his decision issued last month, Justice Henry Brown said it was clear switching offices led to an entirely new standard. End quote. Pantia, Diana, and I discussed the litigation on today's episode. For those who want to read the decision, it is Tafreshi v. Canada Citizenship and Immigration, 2022, FC 1089. Now, when we recorded the episode, we first discussed the procedural aspects of case-managed litigation as opposed to individual judicial reviews, and then discussed the actual substantive law, how the self-employed class works, and what Justice Brown ruled. When uploading, or prior to uploading the episode, I decided to reverse the order, which I think makes it easier to follow, as the discussion about case-managed litigation kind of assumed some basic knowledge about the self-employed class and procedural fairness principles that we wound up discussing later in the episode, so I reversed the order. Pantia can be reached on Twitter at at Jafari underscore law, so at J-A-F-A-R-I underscore L-A-W, her website is jafarilaw.ca, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. So let's talk about what actually happened. So <laughs> self-employed class applications, these are people with experience in athletics or cultural activities who basically want to come to Canada to start a business in cultural activities or athletics. And or for not. people from Iran, they used to be processed in Ankara and they were transferred to Warza, Warsaw. What year, the visa post, mm -hmm. what, what year was the transfer done? Sure. I'll give you a little bit of a background. Um, yeah. yeah, the program's now closed for farmers, but at the time it's, uh, it had three subcategories, uh, uh, artists, athletes, and farmers. And the artists and athletes are at world-class level. So like, you know, uh, top of their profession. And then the farmers also uh, were supposed to be, uh, you know, at the top of their game as well. And in about 2018, actually, the ATIP shows that from about 2014, 
IRCC is starting to investigate this program and invest and see why it seems to be so burdensome, time consuming and costly for its agents. So, so just to pause, when you say that, that they're investigating the program, is that specifically from Iran or across the whole program? Across, across, across the, the whole, whole program. program. And right. they, they uh, sent out surveys to the main visa post-processing these types of applications. Anyways, the questioners come back, basically all of them saying the problem with this program is there isn't enough upfront um, information to applicants on what the requirements are and how to satisfy them. So first of all, a lot of people who don't qualify, especially in the farm category, are applying, and that's why they've paused the farmer program. Uh, but overall, they don't know what documents to submit. And so they the officers have to either conduct an interview or send a document request mm. before they can start assessing. So normally you have the application, it comes up in your queue, you open it and you assess. And, you know, if something's wrong, then then you maybe send a procedural fairness, but otherwise you can make the decision right away. For this category, um, the officers were reporting that once it hits our queue and we open it, we have to start with looking at what they've sent and often it's not enough and sending them either a document request or, or um, an interview scheduling. And then we often still have to do follow-ups and that's why it takes a really long time and lots of resources from us. And um, the visa posts also opine that to, um, to for it to be defensible on litigation, for sure there must be some level of procedural fairness, things like that. But so in 2018, um, Ankara has a, a growing inventory of un, just under 500 applications and says, you know, it's taking us a long time to go through. Warsaw seems to have uh, the capacity to take them on and a decision is made for it to for them to transfer it there. But the internal discussions at, at management level, high level management, confirms that there was a discussion of what the procedural fairness um, indicia should be owed to the applicants that are being transferred. And they say, okay, you should definitely send a document request. Ankara says, we've sent it for a few, you send the rest. Warsaw mm -hmm. even drafts one, but in the end, they make a decision not to send a document request and categorically make a decision not to have an interviews. Okay. So there's also fettering of discretion issues because that's not an, at an officer level anymore. And it should have been. But anyways, so there's a decision to just start assessing the application. So the, the applications get there in March, start, starting as early as like three weeks later, they, they start refusing the applications. And these are applications that have sat for a couple of years with without updated information. Um, and what becomes interesting is uh, usually there's three elements of eligibility for, for this program. And one of them is um, a requisite work experience. And one of them is ability and intention to continue your self-employed um, activity once you come to Canada. That branch wasn't being really given much rigor or assessment by Ankara. That was given a, a given, basically. If you proved that you had the work experience and you intended to continue doing that, that was basically all they wanted to see. Um, and they were asking for just very macro level business plans at the time. But when we get to uh, Warsaw, Warsaw officers now start treating the business plans microscopically. 
So they say, oh, no, you don't have enough details. You haven't contacted the people. There's no sourcing for the uh, for the financial projections that, that you've made. Um, uh, there's no sourcing for your uh, market analysis, things like that. So what was something that was a given before now becomes a fatal determining issue in all of the applications. Mm. So in all of the applications, they were refused for ability and intent and almost all of them because of some microscopic issue that they took with the business plan, which then was fatal against all other evidence, hundreds of pages of evidence of everything else. I see if I may, so, just to interrupt for one second, the individual cases that were getting litigated, they were just getting refused on the basis like the onus is on you to present a complete application and you haven't done that. So therefore, you uh, haven't it wasn't unreasonable. You. Okay. Yes. That totally makes sense. Okay. Carry on. Yes. Just to add an additional like, so like I'm looking at the self-employed class checklist and the current checklist, or at least the one as of June 2019 doesn't ask for any documents for the intended business in Canada. It just it asks for proof of relevant experience during the five years before the application in cultural activities or athletics and maybe farming before the closure, I assume. And the actual form says regarding the business, the intended business just says, describe the occupation in which you intend to be self-employed provide details of location and anticipated investment if applicable. Exactly. <laughs> That's so awesome. Here's, <laughs> so here's what's interesting. That checklist that you're referring to um, has a heading called work experience. So it doesn't even de delineate what they want to see in terms of work experience, but it's completely silent on ability and intent. And on top of it, it says right on it, don't send anything else until we ask for it. Okay. So that's oh, how the program goodness. is. And that's why it's so cumbersome because people have absolutely no idea at the outset what they should be sending, what they should be doing. And, but, uh, and so in the case, we argued over a dozen legal issues and they began with these macro level procedural fairness issues. So the design of the program is uniquely flawed because it doesn't set out how the person's supposed to satisfy the eligibility requirements for the program oh in and of itself. That's a big problem. So we started at those procedural fairness issues up to the legitimate expectation procedural fairness issues, which is that aside from the flaws in the program, Ankar was doing it a certain way. So they had an expectation that that would continue. And then we went into the reasonableness issues of it's unreasonable to treat a business plan that's not even required for this program as a fatal issue when they have other evidence that could be relied on towards the ability and intent portion. And so the court took our strongest two arguments, which was the legitimate expectation, granted the applications on that and then didn't even address the rest. So the wow. rest of the issues are still ripe for future litigation and whatever, because they, they still haven't been resolved. And the other thing the court said was they changed operational manuals during this time. In 2016, uh, they updated the operational manual to officers for this program. And the one previous to that had very significant procedural fairness 
rights indicated in there. So it gave um, officers uh, direction that where you have concerns of eligibility and admissibility. Mm -hmm. So this is nuanced. It's not like this for any other program. And the case law is very, very clear. The IRCC doesn't have an obligation to give you a running score. It's your obligation to put your best foot forward. They are only required to send you a document request or a procedural fairness letter where there's an issue of credibility, blah, blah. Right. We're all it familiar. Relate with to the requirements law. of the legislation. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. But in in this category, given that those procedural guarantees were in that um, operating manual, the, the, when they changed it, they left everything the same, essentially, but just removed the reference to those um, procedural guarantees. Wow. Now, we, we also argued that that in and of itself was bad faith yeah. because, because IRCC had done a really deep kind of investigation, internal investigation, uh, you know, uh, produced a report out of it saying the first recommendation is to improve the eligibility criteria and the upfront information to clients because they definitely do not know how to satisfy officers of how to be successful in this case. And then on the heels of that, you go remove the the the, the procedural protections, yeah. Procedural protections that they so that they can hold you accountable for yeah. that lack of knowledge up front. It comes a bit like, do you want these applicants or not? It's not even just bad faith in federal court, that's just bad faith contracting. Yeah, totally. Well, and it's something I've argued in judicial reviews before, which is like you guys I mean, I don't this is paraphrasing, but you clearly don't like the program. You do have the ability to change it. So instead of just like refusing people under a program you don't like, change it. One of the or things the court said here was, want, um, you know, yeah. and so people can put together the case to be met. So the court talked about how there's inconsistent guidance on the IRCC website regarding how the mm -hmm. self-employed class works. And for most of the old manuals, when IRCC would create a program delivery instruction on their website, they would delete the manual that was previously there, the PDF manual. Mm -hmm. Did IRCC during this explain why they haven't deleted the self-employed class old manual? Because as Justice Brown mm -hmm. noted, there's now two inconsistent <laughs> guidelines on the IRCC website. And I just went, to the see if the old manual was still there and sure enough it's still there so yeah, did they explain why the they case, aren't even, yeah and it says it's active like did they, did they, they explain why they haven't deleted it like why wow. is it still up no. did they no, offer any explanation absolutely not there was no explanation offered which also makes the um legitimate expectation piece a little bit uh I'm sorry to say arbitrary again, because the the Justice Brown said, yes, it creates confusion that they are both still listed as an active document, but said for at least six months after, I will I will say that it's legitimate that you expect it to be um, given the procedural guarantees of the old manual, which is still to this day that we're talking on their website. So then why should the legitimate expectation end at six months? Wow. Why isn't that legitimate expectation continuing to present because it's still there? Can you not just rely on the information that you're finding if you happen upon the, the other current manual? Like how can that possibly be something that you're following an error? 
and especially because it's so similar the uh, the new manual is exactly the same pretty much except those chunks have been removed there's I, i've looked at it in very close detail i really cannot identify any other differences between the two manuals except for the explicit removal of the procedural guarantees wow you can never tell if that's like deliberate or you know it could also be may i mean you just never know if it's a, it's deliberate. like how the kusma guidelines for graphic designer have been yeah. incorrect ever since yes, like yes, 2017 yes. on the ircc website yeah and how long it can take to change so the other question i had though was like so it was was it only iranian files at ankara that were transferred or all self-employed class files so um a visa post gets uh, applications from certain countries only, as you know. So there, yeah. the countries that feed into Ankara are Iranians, Turkish, um, Azerbaijan, and I think and one other country, Uzbekistan, maybe. And so the inventory was from all of these countries, um, and but the Iranians was was the sizable portion of it. And while they talked about transferring the entire inventory, in the end, they only transferred the Iranians, it seems. And uh, But after the transfer, they continued to send all new applications to Warsaw thereafter. Mm. Mm. So from 2018, from March 2018, when uh, Warsaw uh, inherited the inventory, from then on as well, they processed all at least Iranian applications and we're not sure about the rest. Do we know if Warsaw had its own inventory of self-employed applications prior to this? It didn't. It, it, it be, it, I actually asked Mr. Richter on cross-examination, and I don't recall specifically, but basically they were doing like five or so okay. a So this year. was like a whole new line of business for that visa office, ultimately. Uh so there are eight people at this visa office. Two of them were brand new in their first post altogether. Um, and then other other officers had either experience with this category, but in other nationals mm. or Iranians, mm -hmm. but other categories. Mm. But I just have to like comment. Like I understand that, you know, this is a visa application and therefore procedural rights are considered to be at the low end of the spectrum. But when you think about all of the effort that people put into creating these applications and that they give it to somebody who's on their first post, probably the most complex type of application to wade through. Um, and without that line of business and the more senior seasoned officers in the visa post being able to mentor, like that just in itself kind of makes my brain break a little bit. Um, and yeah. to me kind of suggests a bit of bad faith. But again, I understand that the limitations of being able to argue this, but just procedurally, Absolutely. like I wouldn't do that in my own office, give the hardest case to the most inexperienced person with no track record working on that side of file and just being like, okay, go. You know? And then I especially think that that person, on top of the lack of experience with this category, blah, blah, none of them had training on business plans, but business plans become some, some sort of assessment of the business plans becomes the fatal, fatal error of hundreds of other pages in the application. 
So I was just um, looking at a stat. I'm sorry, you guys. I just got a call from my daughter who I have to run out and pick up at school. I think she's injured herself. So I, I'm oh. going to have to. <laughs> it's okay. It's just her finger. But I will definitely uh, want to just jump off and make sure she's okay. Okay. Sorry, not folks. a problem. Not a problem. Super, super interesting. Um, I'm just congratulations on this case. It's Thank a so real much. triumph. And uh, I have so many more questions, but for another I know. day. I mean, the, the JR <laughs> itself was four days. Trust me. I can oh, talk about yeah, this for a, like a long, long time. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Okay. I'm going to say goodbye to you all, but uh, uh, I, I will listen to the rest of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Take care. Okay. So, like, I mean, I'm just looking at some stats that I've tweeted about where Warsaw has a less than 50% approval rate for economic class applications. I don't know what percent are self-employed. Do you think that that visa office has just been set up to process files that are likely going to be refused? Well, interestingly, euphemistically, Warsaw is known as the visa post that applications go to to die. Yeah. And it happened with another set of Iranian applications, um, skilled worker applications a few years back. So, yeah, and that's why, you know, it'd be really helpful to to get statistics, uh, officer-based statistics on the approval and refusals. And I mean, that in and of itself wouldn't uh, wouldn't demonstrate bad faith or closed mind or anything. We know that we we know that from the refugee contacts where you know there's a member that's got almost hundred percent refusals and it's still not enough. But when you, if we had that, then coupled with all the other evidence, we hundred percent would have, in my opinion, been able to um, prove bad faith, specifically in this case, just because there was so much circumstantial evidence around it that we could have gotten at. Uh, but we weren't given any statistics on the approval and refusal rates of this specific category from that visa post, and especially yeah. with Iranians. And I A-tipped it like three different ways and didn't get it. And in your A-tipping, did you come across anything which suggested that self-employed class or applicants from Iran after they arrived in Canada were either not starting their businesses or their businesses were failing? Like, was there anything that Absolutely. would give rise to like beyond just, oh, these files are complicated, like something to justify why all of a sudden they're really looking at business plans, seemingly no. just for people from Iran? No, no, definitely nothing like that came up in the case. And uh, definitely it's not something I have even anecdotally heard of. Because they, in my experience, actually, so many of them now, years later, even decades later, are still in that profession. Yeah. So, no, um, that's not something that came up, which is why it seemed like that was an excuse for refusing them, which is also why it's so problematic, right? Because you need to know what's happening and applicants are always in the dark when it comes to IRCC. If they chose, I, I wrote an article for CELA uh, once that talks about this issue because it's a really big um, sore spot for me. Where they chose to close applications, I think whatever problems we might have legally with that, at least that's an honest approach. You're telling apl applicants, listen, for whatever reason, I don't have time, I don't have patience, I don't like the program, I'm not gonna process these applications. You know where you stand and you can deal with it, you can take legal rec recourse. But what happens in these types of situations, in my opinion, is that they're being set up to be refused, to, yep. to, 
clear the backlog. So if that's if your intention was just to clear the backlog, why refuse them? Just at least close them so they know that it wasn't based on something they did wrong. Because this way they they start questioning themselves, they start questioning their representatives, they start questioning the entire legal system. And it it, it create it's such a disservice because it's not a, a frank and honest manner of dealing with your inventory backlogs and processing priority co- competitions. Well, and also like, I mean, it, almost the nature of the question that I asked, like if all of a sudden you see all these refusals from Iran or from Iranians based on their business intention, a lay person would wonder, okay, well, is there, you know, why, like, is there a concern that people aren't starting their business? Like what's what's giving rise to this? But if in the litigation, none of that is uh, you know presented by IRCC, it leads to that conclusion that, well, this is just a way to clear the backlog, which given the backlogs in some programs now is a troubling yeah. thought. But how problematic is that? That it circumstantially seems so palpable that that's what happened but we couldn't even argue that in federal court yeah. because because of the evidentiary uh issues the 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 systemic ed- evidentiary issues yeah um we've talked a bit about really legitimate swallow. like honestly this case is so unique in so many ways and we had such strong evidence in so many ways and still we couldn't uh, have the evidence rise to the standard of arguing even bad faith and bias, much less getting a judgment on it. Yeah. And I find also a lot of the times, like the bigger issues like that, individual federal court judges don't uh, don't always want to address it if they can find other ways to deal with a case. Did you know during the course of the four-day hearing where it was leading in terms of dismissal or allowed? No. And what was refreshing is that um, Justice Brown definitely understood the issues, understood the evidence, and understood the arguments. And it was very, very refreshing to at least... He didn't necessarily um, give any hints, in my opinion, of how he was going to side, but at least it, the validation of hearing him understand the applicant's pain after all these years of hardship was really refreshing. And twice on on two days, once and then once the next day, he um, he kind of threw out a musing. So if we were to say that, you know, okay, that practice was being followed by Ankara and, you know, maybe it should have been followed by Warsaw, how long would that expectation be legitimate for? Like it was just thrown out as a random question, which when it came up a second time gave me some thought that maybe that's where he's leading but um no definitely he didn't uh, reveal his cards during yeah. the hearing i mean i think between this case and then i'm going to pronounce this wrong but jacono v canada which uh another 2022 decision involving mandamus where justice mosley called out ircc for explicitly stating that they have no plans to process family class applications from ghana but they will for other countries that I think the federal court is also hopefully becoming aware of there are systemic differences in how people are treated. Well, systemic, yes, but the court has pronounced previously that that 
some of it is completely justifiable yeah. as long as the the uh, government is open and honest about it you know it, with the closure of the skilled worker files and the quebec investor files they said yes it's discriminatory because it led to only certain nationalities applications being closed because they were the ones that weren't processed but because they did it explicitly it's their choice it's okay yeah do you know these files so they've all gone back for redetermination with a somewhat short timeline to a visa post that's overwhelmed with Ukrainian applications. Do you know if they're going to stay in Warsaw? Uh, so I'm going to preface my answer by um, addressing the premise of your question. And the the takeaway from, from my reading of the judgment as well was that the 90 days is to apply to all cases, but DOJ has po- uh, pushed back on that. Uh, so we actually do have to go back to court because they, uh, their position is that the 90 days applies to the lead cases only, and they will prioritize, quote unquote, the remaining cases, but not, not apply the 90 days per se. So that's an issue that's going to be before the court um, and we're not sure about. Uh, but in terms of where it will go, I don't think it will go to Warsaw. No, Warsaw is inundated with Ukraine um applications overall right now i think they will find um a spot or a little hole somewhere in some other visa post to to send these through there and then probably my last question just uh looking at the time we've talked a fair bit about legitimate expectations but i don't know if we've actually defined it or explained the principle so if you had a lay person or another lawyer asking um you know, how does legitimate expectations work in law, specifically in the context of immigration? How would you like explain it? Sure. So every applicant is owed certain uh, certain rights in the process of decision making for the process to be deemed legal and legitimate and fair. Now, with um, foreign nationals applying for immigration, because they have no rights inside Canada right now, those those um, procedural rights are really, really, really limited. So, you know, um, whereas if you were talking about taking away a Canadian's citizenship, they would have a right to a hearing, to be before a judge, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's obviously clawed back significantly for uh, foreign nationals outside of Canada or inside making their initial uh, immigration applications. Um, legitimate expectations is a is a a, a, a subcategory of that process fairness um, overall, and it basically says that even where a process wasn't your right, you weren't entitled to have that process, but the government was engaging in that process gratuitously for a period of time, it gives rise to your expectation of that process continuing being deemed reasonable. And usually for only a certain period of time, it's not indefinite. And the interesting thing is where your expectation is deemed to be legitimate. It's an expectation of process only. It's not of substance and outcome. So you can't say because 
I was always given an interview and approved after I should be approved. The court will say, okay, if you were always given an interview and approved, you have a right to an interview, but the approval is based on them. What's very interesting in this case is that the court opined that not only did IRCC need to now assess these applications based on the process that Ankara was following, but has also ordered a bit of substantive rights into it and has said that they have to treat the evidence in the manner that Ottawa, um, that Ankara was uh, treating them. So they are, they are precluded, explicitly precluded from taking the types of, in my opinion, excuses with the business plans that they were before. Well, and I think also um, the case law has to be, uh, they have to follow case law that existed at that time instead of as you pointed out, the more recent stricter case law, which Correct. I thought was super unique um, and possibly the I, most surprising part of the case where I went, wow, that's you don't yeah. see that often. I actually don't think I've ever seen that a court yeah. to say, you know, the judgments of the court to, to today don't apply to your case. Like That was very unique. Yeah. Well, congrats that it's been um, it, it's as Deanna was saying. Uh, it was a super interesting case to read, which is why as soon as I read it, I said, we've got to have you on because, uh, a, uh, yeah, we haven't like, it's, it's, it raises so many issues that we've touched upon on this show, uh, regarding differential treatment, systemic bias, as well as like a very interesting consolidated proceeding, uh, which led to things you don't always see. So congrats. Thank you. Thank you very much. It it was a very joyous end to a very hard <laughs> four years. <laughs> yeah. Although it sounds like now you have to go back on this issue of who gets uh, priority processing. Yeah. Uh. And then some, right? So we still have to also deal with all the people that were refused out of Warsaw in exactly the same manner, whether they were... Um, I mean, not in our case, but whether they went up alone or have never been before the court. Yeah. No, uh, well, it will definitely be keeping you busy. But yeah, mm -hmm. the, uh, congrats. It was a fascinating talk. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Happy yeah. to come back anytime. <laughs> yeah. Have fun, uh, I guess, on your holiday in uh, Halifax. Okay. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Would it be right to call it a class action or a consolidated it's, it's a managed litigation. A managed yeah. litigation. So, so that was my first question because um, I think that like, um, I, I don't know if this is something that you'd be comfortable talking about, but I think that, you know, people I think are more, more accustomed to consolidations and to, you know, class actions, but the idea of case managed um, um, litigation is I think something that's a much less familiar concept, but the way that you use this in this case is just super brilliant. And so um, I would love to hear more about um, how that works. And I think um, our listeners would just be really interested in understanding some of some of those like fundamental distinctions. Sure. Um, well, I mean, we're all relatively familiar with an individual federal court case, you know, you go up to bat, discuss your circumstances and, and hope for the best. Um, and then a class action is also uh, legally complicated sometimes, but procedurally can be a little bit cleaner because you can get have like one client and declare a class and every person that's covered by those circumstances are covered in the decision, but you're you know dealing with one 
client, one test case type of thing. Managed litigation, on the other hand, is um, kind of a can of worms. It's a, a it's complex procedurally, legally, um, from all aspects. So uh, there are a lot of conflicts issues to consider. There's a lot of administrative issues to consider. And legally as well, with a group that big, um, because usually when when we've seen the court do managed litigation, it's it's a it's a singular le- um, decision that's been made by IRCC, and you uh, litigated on behalf of a bunch of people. So, like the closure of the uh, skilled worker files, the closure of the Quebec investor files. It's a it's a decision, but in this case, it was actual determinations, case-by-case determinations on a one-on-one basis, multiplied by 110, and you were trying to then find commonalities to bring to the court for efficiency. So as the case grew, aside from the uh, logistical problems, and we can discuss any aspect of it you like, but legally too, to try to decide who were going to be the test cases, to try to decide what were going to be the issues argued at a group level versus left at the individual Mm -hmm. uh, was very difficult, complex, very strategic kind of decision making. Um, And you know, we always say law school doesn't teach you to be a lawyer at all, but like certainly even lawyering doesn't teach you how to do a managed mm-hmm. litigation of For this sure. complexity. So it was a lot of, um, you know, spinning my wheels till I found my way. For um, sure. and, uh, but now I've gained such incredible experience through it that I think I'm going to take a group approach to pretty much everything else going forward. Yeah, no, this is totally what I've been thinking about um, myself, because I feel like the way that we are experiencing decision-making out of the federal court is that the one-to-one litigation is proving much less fruitful. <laughs> and so um, I've been kind of like fiddling with the consolidation and class action, that kind of stuff. But the what you've um, indicated here is exactly what the issue is, is trying to find a commonality um, that makes the litigants uniform is where the problems arise. And what it sounds like, while it's kind of, um, you know, a bit of a can of worms, it allows for certain issues to be resolved on a group basis, while Mm -hmm. there doesn't have to be that commonality in the issues overall, as I understand it. Yeah. So, um, Basically, the approach I took to it is that I I took every single file, went through the evidence and the reasons and thought of what I would argue as issues on judicial review. Like this application is problematic for this reason. And then went through all of the cases that we had at that point, which was, I think, 87 by the time we were doing the record. Um, And then you see what's common, basically, to the cases that, that you can argue at the common level. But then the selection of the lead case is really important because where the issue is com- common to all of them, it's, but it's based on evidence, right? So you need to assess that issue based on the evidence in, in a specific matter. But if you pick your stellar case with great evidence, then you risk getting that judgment, but it not being applicable to the rest because their evidence isn't as mm. strong. And if you take 
a weaker case so that if you win that issue, then it catches everyone because they had that or stronger, then you risk your evidence not being strong enough to win the issue. So it's ah, right. Okay. I get it. Very, very um, difficult maneuvering. So how did you come across all these cases? Like, did you have individual self-employed class judicial reviews from Iran that you were doing or were you approached by some consultant saying, hey, we do a lot of applications. We've noticed a trend and think there's a systemic problem. How did it kind of come about? The latter. I was approached by a consultant who's been doing, seemingly this was his bread and butter, um, some 500 self-employed cases. And then uh, he reported uh, a seeming change in decision-making, a really seismic shift in Uh, process and outcome. And so we understood at the outset that it wasn't a one-off, that it was some sort of decision-making issue, not an individual client problem. So when we filed the first JR and we filed with just one, um, we knew we would intend to consolidate. So by the time we had eight, we approached the court to ask for it to be case managed. And we're, I'm very pleased that the court agreed because at at a number of eight, you really can't still tell if there's a bigger issue. Yeah. Um, but all I could say to the judge, uh, to the court at the time, was that we know of others because the re- rest of the right. refusals were already refused, like received. We just said they haven't ponied up and retained yet and whatever, but this is an issue we can palpably see is uh, transcending more than the individual applicants. So um, at, by the time we were at eight, the court agreed to manage litigation and assigned a case management judge. And then we proceeded for uh, what became four years in the litigation process. And mostly the four years, I mean, there were some internal issues and, and whatnot between the the applicants and, and um, the reps and stuff. But mainly it was um, an effort to obtain evidence. And I think the, the case is so unique for so many reasons. But one of it is that it highlights to me that the standard the court has said for issues of bias, bad faith, things like that are outside the the reach of most applicants because we fundamentally are systemically disadvantaged because we're not the holders of evidence that proves that. So to prove something like that, you would need the internal IRCC communications, documents, decision-making. And even if you are smart enough to know what to ATIP to try to access that, it comes back redacted. Right. So we dealt with a lot of that in the case. We, um, I think... In reality, there is really good evidence of bad faith in this situation, but we don't have access to it. And what we what we have been able to kind of squeeze out of IRCC and also create ourselves internally um, was still shy of the full hand that you would like to have to make that kind of a serious argument, because, you know, the court will actually school counsel for making the argument if it's not um, yes of course. it seems like exaggerated or inflammatory exactly. or whatever exactly so in the end um we weren't able to argue it in the case but 
even though we had much better evidence than many applicant groups even, because we both ATIPed strategically and we had the opportunity to cross-examine the program manager. So, you know, and that's why the, the court's uh, pronouncement that this was a calculated decision is really, really important because I think the court understood what we were up against and understood that I can't raise it to the level of, you know, arguing bad faith and stuff, but he at least acknowledged the pain of the applicants and said, yes, okay, I I can at least acknowledge that it was calculated. However, you want to characterize that afterwards, but this is at least what happened. Wow. When when you're relying on those Access to Information Act requests, those often take longer than federal court deadlines to receive. So were you able to get extensions from the court for deadlines within the court or did the court kind of direct IRCC to do the ATIPs faster? No. So we came out of the normal processing. So the normal timelines didn't apply to us. And our first record wasn't filed until I think two years after the litigation had started. So initially um, we held them in abeyance until we gathered more applicants to understand what the issues were. And then it was another year, basically, while we were waiting for some evidence, including, like I said, evidence that we gathered because we couldn't we couldn't access it any other way. I did multiple ATIPs that uh, and offered to pay for the because obviously it's information that's not readily available in the format that IRCC does. And for your listeners, in case they don't know where it's not something where it's not a statistic set that IRCC regularly collects, they uh, will give you the option of having the information, but at a cost. They will charge you for uh, the person's time that it takes to compile that kind of data set for you. So in all the ATIPs, I made very clear, I'm willing to pay whatever is necessary. I would like X information. Give me statistics specifically on what was approved by what visa post, what nationality, things like that. And none of that was um, it came through in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we did was because, for example, the consultant was reporting that in one day we received like 10 refusals and seemingly from the same decision maker, what we did, which I think was very, very creative, is I had my staff create a chart of all of the refusals in order of date, time, and officer. And we were able to, we unfortunately weren't able to to get this by the time we filed the record because we didn't have enough applicants for it to, sh- to for this to reveal itself. But by the time we were filing our further record, because of the growth in the applicant numbers, which statistically, let's say, was about one-fifth of the data set of what was processed out of that visa post, we were able to show that there was at least half a dozen, if not more, situations where the decisions were made minutes apart. You know, one, 10 minutes apart, 16, 20, 36, things like that. And so when you're looking at document uh, application packages of four or 500 pages, that immediately would suggest bad faith. And if we were able to have that evidence at the time we filed the record, we could have still argued it. But because um, we weren't, it was characterized as reply evidence instead of just your right to file a further um, memorandum. uh, And uh, we, we weren't granted the permission to file that as further evidence. 
Um, so if we do derivative litigations, we'll have access to that. But this is what I'm saying. It's it's extremely difficult. It's extremely complicated. It's not in our hands and in our control. Even when you're doing your utmost to do the ATIP requests and stuff, if they don't want to give you that information, you will not have access to it. And wow. and on top of it, our case got the time extensions to even try. So this is certainly systemically a problem for applicants trying to raise what seem to be very palpable circumstances of bad faith or po possibly discrimination or whatever, but we we literally cannot bring that into uh, court under any circumstances because of the lack of evidence. For sure. I think that's a really big problem. I had argued in this case that the court should consider a different standard. Maybe if if let's say bias, you really do need uh, really strong evidence, even though maybe we don't have access to it, fine. Maybe do something like negligence. M maybe have a new, sta new issue of negligence or uh, carelessness, something. Something that is more provable because of this imbalance of access to the data sets, to the, to the evidence. In a way, isn't that what you did through like evoking the doctrine of legitimate expectation in a way was to kind of say that um, like it sort of articulated the procedural fairness requirements in a different manner so that it's like even for me, from my perspective, just like even the fact that getting the information through a standard ATIP is so protracted now um, that it's like either it's part of their regular data set or you have to go to all these like Herculean efforts to obtain the other information. Like this is a change of procedure that really serves nothing. I mean, I understand it's hard to produce that material, but at the same time, it allows for institutional obfuscation of the decision-making process and basically makes these issues litigation-proof. <laughs> so, you know, like we're kind of, the, the actual applicants are operating at such an evidentiary disadvantage exactly. that like, it's almost impossible to rectify that imbalance. Absolutely. And that's why I'm going to continue to argue that a different standard needs to be set because it is in in 99.9% of the cases, it's an insurmountable, insurmountable. standard. Yeah. I 100% agree with you. And it's, it's actually, it's almost making individual judicial reviews kind of like impotent <laughs> in Absolutely. my view. Yeah. Well, and the other issue that it also raises, and I mean, we should get to the substance of the case, but in part, the case stands, it's a bit more nuanced than this, but that differential treatment by visa offices can amount to a breach of procedural fairness. Shortly after the decision, we received through ATIP a bunch of very redacted risk assessments that IRCC had done internally comparing approval rates for visa offices, even down to some of them for individual officers, presumably to see if there were any discrepancies. And of course, it's all redacted beyond just the title. And you're right, like individual judicial reviews won't get at these systemic issues. Even the consolidated approach is difficult if it everything is, is redacted. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the consolidated approach is, is kind of 
um, it's neutered by the fact that the issues need to be so similar and the court will reject a consolidation unless they feel like there's no diversity in the issues between the various judicial reviews. And that, unless it's like a husband and wife who applied together and there were like the same basis for refusal on both applications, getting an, like getting a consolidation is not an easy thing to do, even if there is a single issue that unifies them all. So case management does appear to be the only way to actually um, to, to, to go about that. But still, I think that the underlying issue, like we can say amongst ourselves that we are aware of the fact that there is, let's say, systemic bias or systemic racism in, in terms of how applications are adjudicated, that you're going to have a harder time with this argument, at this visa office than at that visa office. But in trying to actually provide the evidence to um, to, to quantify that or to, to, to prove that at the court's standard is really, um, it's really almost impossible, though I think we're all feeling like we're knocking our head at that same door. Absolutely. And when you, when you talk about the individual case being uh, a situation of impotence, essentially, I think our case proves that so, so, so succinctly because um, the exact same refusals of individuals by this visa post with the same procedural issues when they went up to court on an individual basis, the court upheld the decisions as reasonable. Mm -hmm. So it, in the four years of the litigation, it built case law against our applicants right. that were exactly similarly situated. And what was one of the, in my opinion, big accomplishments of the case was that we were able to demonstrate, I'm not going to say those cases were wrong, but those cases were clearly the decisions were made in isolation, in a vacuum of, of lack of factual knowledge of the circumstances in which they were made. And we were able to get an explicit judgment that those cases and those judgments don't apply to our applicants, specifically because we were able to prove the broader context. So when you think of that, think how that those individuals feel now exactly mm -hmm. exactly situated as my clients but they just didn't want to wait the length of the litigation went up to bat alone and they yeah. lost their litigation and i mean they some of them have approached our office now what do i say do yeah. i say like relitigate or you know how do you get around that but we yeah. know that practically speaking, it was an incorrect decision. Yeah. Is it or the safe ones to say, that like or... had already spent so much money getting up to the point of refusal that they were like, look, I don't want to throw good money after bad. I'm not going to bother litigating this at all. Like we haven't even thought to that group <laughs> of applicants. And I feel like there are lots of those like sitting by the wayside still outside of the country, just like, oh, this is somebody else's fight to argue. Yeah. That's similar to the citizenship revocation consolidated proceedings of 2017 for people who joined and didn't would it be sort of accurate to say that like those individual cases in part were unsuccessful because they were largely based on reasonableness whereas yours was based on breach of procedural fairness that could only be discovered through a consolidated proceeding exactly yeah. those cases argued procedure as well except because they didn't have the context and because they didn't have the evidence of the legitimate expectations that arose right. from a certain visa post, that's why they they yeah. they um, lost. But 
therein lies yet another problem because how often will it be that you can have that kind of evidence? You know, we had a consultant who had done 500 of these applications and therefore was very um, able to see a change in processing. But that, but most people don't operate that way. Most people don't do factory lines of one type of application or one visa post. We often tend to do all kinds of things. So when we get a weird refusal, we wouldn't necessarily know that there must be a problem at this visa post presently. We just think, oh, this is an odd decision. Let's take it to court, right? But the court actually put an onus, an obligation on counsel, I find, the way that it's the timing issue is. So the, the court basically said, yes, there is a legitimate expectation when a visa post does something a certain way uh, for a long time and where IRCC, because of whatever constraints, chooses to switch visa posts and that new one treats it differently without notice to the applicant, that's a breach of legitimate expectation. Okay, yeah. that's fine. But um, in terms of... Um, Oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought, guys. <laughs> mm, that's okay. That was that was a lot. And I'm just sort of, for some reason, I'm stuck on a specific thought. So we, we can just like be a bit random for a minute. Sure. But like, okay. it's one thing when you're when your litigants are also people self-employed with substantial means, but it's also like, if you're looking at this, like I understand these um, strategic issues about how you assemble this group in the first place, but imagine if we're not talking about self-employed people, but caregivers, (laughs) you know, like I might have the volume, but like, you know, in terms of like all of the organization, all of the funds to finance this litigation, you know? So I think that these, um, these, uh, obstacles about how you actually can bring together this cohesive group and assemble the evidence. It's very similar uh, challenges because like, mm-hmm. as you said, in an individual litigation, you can't show that this is the manner of the visa office dealing with them on an ongoing basis because you can't deduce evidence for matters that are outside of the one um, tech, like um, specifically before the the judge. So um, I think that again, just in terms of a like rule of law question, I think it's still that there's a privileging of those who are going to be substantially invested and that have the financial needs for this to trickle down like throughout the system so that all litigants would have this type of access is part of the issue. Well, it, I mean, yes, definitely. But it, it's also a, an assumption to think that these were well-off people that were self-employed, especially because they're Iranians with the currency dropping seismically day by day, they actually didn't have the means. And when you mm. see a decision that's being made that seems to be palpably unlawful, you lose faith in the system. You don't want to continue to invest in it. So to to garner the hope amongst these people to want to ante and to want to argue it, to litigate it, uh, and you talk about costs and things like that, most of it had to be borne by me individually. Uh, you know, I had to give credit to them, low low bono type work um, in order to be able to get them to even be interested in continuing their efforts. And that's why now there are hundreds of people that weren't in the group now saying, okay, now that I see the court seems to have finally acknowledged there's something wrong, now how can I... Um, benefit from it because I had no hope of that before. Yeah. Um, And then to go back to my other point, the 
so you know the, this consultant was able to see it and um and our, so we were able to successfully argue the legitimate expectation but then the court went ahead and said okay how long is that expectation legitimate for so it was an issue that wasn't canvassed in written pleadings it was just raised to us in oral arguments and so it's not something that was um uh argued at all properly so i think it's it's a little bit of an arbitrary um selection but the court decided that it's reasonable to expect representatives to be aware of that kind of a change within six months and if you're self-represented within nine months. Now that to me is completely unrealistic and with all due respect to um, um, the court, there's I, I take no issue with the decision. I'm just saying practically speaking, because we don't work in you know silo type applications and visa right. posts, it, it's almost impossible for us to discern that there's something internally happening, especially when we don't get that information through access to information right. requests or public knowledge or anything. How would we have discovered this if not for this really unique nuanced situation? So it makes me think of how many other Mm. of these types of situations are out there mm -hmm. that we I have no knowledge you. of that we All can't that seem times. to get our 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 uh, fingers into in, into um really arguing and adjudicating what seem to be hugely rampant systemic issues I, I feel like part of this um is uh, I think it's going to cause us, like people that are in the litigation field, to really practice in quite a different way because we need to kind of pool our information because we don't practice in a siloed way and to just, um, you know, trading insights like, hey, are you seeing a lot of this? And not just litigators, because even like we need to draw that information. And it's amazing that this case arose during the pandemic when we've had so much fewer, like so... Um, like quite a bit less opportunity to to mingle with within our bar, um, but I feel like that's one of the absences I've really seen. Where not having us be together means we're not just like shooting the shit about our cases. And are you seeing this trend? And are you noticing mm -hmm. that? And all of that kind of stuff. Um, it does sort of feel like we're operating a little bit with our hands tied behind our back because we need to be. You know, we can see what we see in our own individual practices, but unless something really bizarre comes across your desk and then you start like Snoopy, you know, following that trail and figuring out where all the breadcrumbs lead, like it's, it's very hard to build that body of information. So I agree with you about the arbitrariness of like a six month period to discover this because these things can remain undiscovered. They're kind of designed to remain undiscovered until somebody Snoopy's out yep. the trail, right? Like, yeah. 